0: Welcome to Invention, a production of iHeartRadio.
1: Hey, welcome to Invention. My name is Robert
0: Lamb. And I'm Joe McCormick. And today I thought maybe we could inject ourselves into the topic uh, uh. for this episode. By the administration route of some poetry and Greek myth. Robert, are you willing to go that route with me? Let's do it. Okay, so this is going to be from Ovid's Metamorphoses. This is the section on the transformation of syrinx into reeds. And this is the the translation of Ovid by John Dryden. I'll take it first and then you can pick up. You'll know where, Robert. All right, so it begins. Then Hermes said thus, A nymph of late there was whose heavenly form her fellows did surpass, the pride and joy of fair Arcadia's plains, beloved by deities, adored by swains syrinx her name by sylvan's oft pursued as oft she did the lustful gods delude the rural and woodland powers disdained with cynthia hunted and her rights maintained like phoebe clad even phoebe's self she seems so tall so straight such well-proportioned limbs the nicest eye did no distinction know but that the goddess bore a golden bow "'Distinguish thus the sight she cheated too. "'Descending from Lycaeus, Pan admires the matchless nymph "'and burns with new desires. "'A crown of pine upon his head he wore, "'and thus began her pity to implore. "'But ever he thus began, she took her flight, "'so swift she was already out of sight, "'nor stayed to hear the courtship of the god, "'but bent her course to Leyden's gentle flood.' There by the river stopped and tired before, relief from water nymphs her prayers implore.
1: Now while the lustful god with speedy pace, Just thought to strain her in a strict embrace, He filled his arms with reeds, New rising on the place, And while he sighs his ill success to find, The tender canes were shaken by the wind, And breathed a mournful air unheard before, that much surprising pan, yet pleased him more admiring this new music thou he said who canst not be the partner of my bed at least shall be the comfort of my mind and often often to my lips be joined he formed the reeds proportioned as they are unequal in their length and waxed with care they still retain the name of his ungrateful fair
0: and of course That name is the name of the nymph in the story, the name Syrinx, which gives us the English word syringe ah there it is and that's going to be our topic for today the the hypodermic needle and the hypodermic syringe I guess two slightly different things but very much entwined in medical history
1: right uh, now, not so much though
0: the gods chasing nymphs through the reeds so that... <laughs> right uh, so, yeah so this is a, a strange connection but the next time you are getting ready to have blood drawn or to get an injection, get a flu vaccine or something and you're beholding the humble medical syringe know that this word, comes from the Greek syrinx, this nymph who is known for her chastity, but then the great god Pan, his his eye falls to her and he pursues her and she defensively prays to be transformed into hollow reeds, which become the tubes of Pan's flute. So uh, a couple of thoughts. This is a weird and fascinating myth. Number one, it's the most elaborate myth that I could possibly imagine exploring the concept of tubes. (laughs) And then second... Uh, So characters get transformed into a lot of different things in these myths. Obviously, it's the metamorphoses, right? Right. Uh, But this is a double metamorphosis, right? Because she prays to be transformed into hollow reeds, and then she is, and then those reeds get transformed by pan into a musical instrument.
1: I kind of feel like this myth has an unhappy ending, which of course course is not
0: not out of keeping with
1: tales of gods turning uh, individuals into beasts and half-beasts,
0: you know, and they're like... Uh, no, no, the bad guy wins. I mean, <laughs> like, I guess she... She evades Pan, but then he cuts her into reeds and makes her into a flute. Yeah. Uh, yeah. By the way, there's also a great poem by Elizabeth Barrett Browning about this myth called "A Musical Instrument." If you've never read it, it's worth reading. We're not going to read that whole poem, but um, but it's got the great lines: "What was he doing, the great god Pan, down in the reeds by the river, spreading ruin and scattering bands, splashing and paddling with hoofs of a goat, and breaking the golden lilies afloat with the dragonfly on the river." If you haven't read it, you can look it up online and find the full text. It, it It's great. But anyway, so we're going to be talking today about the hypodermic syringe, an invention that I think we really rarely do stop to appreciate, possibly because when most of us are encountering it, we're trying to think about it as little as possible. Mm-hmm. Maybe we're hoping our experience with it is over very quickly. Uh, and it makes us underappreciate how important and, and, and life-saving this invention is. Uh, it's actually extremely useful. It's deeply underappreciated. For one thing, it causes us to ask a question about drugs that we rarely ask, right? Yeah. But what is the best way to get a substance into the body? Not always straightforward. Right. I
1: mean, one of our favorite ways and probably our, our preferred way is, of course, to eat something. Right, you know, which is essentially what we're doing when we have a we take a pill, right? Yeah, um, you know, chewable, swallowable, whatever you know, it happens to be, um, and then we just allow our digestive system to do its job. This is oral absorption, uh, just one of the uh, uh, intral routes for drug absorption. The other two uh, areas are sublingual and per rectum. Uh, which is by use of a suppository. So we're talking about, yeah, suppository or something that goes under the tongue. Mm -hmm. Um, And then there's also inhalation and topical. We'll come back to to topical and a little bit to inhalation going on. But uh, essentially, any of these methods of bringing a substance into your body, bringing a drug into your body, they're going to be pros and cons to each of the methods. And some are going to work better with certain substances than others or not at all. It just depends on what the substance is and, and, uh, and you know, and what its properties are right. and how it, it is going to be best absorbed by the body.
0: Yeah. And well, and a few other things about like the circumstances of the administration, like how quickly do you want it to take effect? Yes. Uh, how de- like how strong do you want the dose to be when it gets absorbed? Things like that. Exactly. But there is another way into the human body, and that is the
1: uh, parenteral route. And there are several different varieties depending on where you want to stick it. But the basic idea is that you inject the substance into the body via uh, what eventually would become a hypodermic needle or via a catheter.
0: Yeah, so I guess to to see the quick version of why it might be important to inject a drug when you could just take a pill – Uh, For one thing, you can't always just take a pill. Like Mm -hmm. the the pharmacology of administration routes is way more complicated than that. For one thing, there are obvious practical reasons why a pill won't always work. Think about a local anesthetic – Imagine you're, you're trying to numb just a certain patch of skin or tissue somewhere on the body to do a local operation without putting the patient completely under.
1: Right. I mean, yeah, when you go to the dentist and uh, the dentist uses, uh, gives you a shot mm-hmm. to the uh, area of your gums that is about to be worked upon. Like you want a very localized effect because that's where it's happening, right there, not in your stomach,
0: uh, right there in your mouth. Exactly. Uh, But there are also tons of molecular and metabolic reasons why a pill isn't always the best administration route for a drug. One example is the drug insulin, which is used to treat diabetes. Insulin – generally needs to be injected because it doesn't survive the digestive system well. If you take an insulin pill, it doesn't uh, survive the acids in our stomach. so if you you were to take insulin orally, its effectiveness would be compromised. It needs to enter the bloodstream directly.
1: Another example would be um, you know mentioned topical. Uh, the most popular one of the more top popular topical um, uh, systems we have is, of course, the, the like the a, a patch, like a nicotine patch. Uh-huh. but for that to work, First of all, you have to be very OK with a slow process because right. you're not going to get an instant uh, you know, action there. But then also the drug molecules have to be small enough to pass through skin pores. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and that's always not going to be the case.
0: Yeah. Oh, and the size of the molecules and the absorption, that also comes to be a factor within the digestive tract, right? Like large molecules have a harder time getting absorbed through the walls of the intestine or the stomach.
1: Right. So I want to come back to the catheter for a second. Oh, boy. So the catheter obviously is not a hypodermic needle. Uh, It doesn't create an opening in the skin. Rather, it makes use of one of our smaller orifices, the urethra. So evidence of catheter usage actually goes back a long time. Like we're talking uh, 3000 BCE with scattered mentions in Greece, Syria, India, uh, China. Uh, The the ancient Chinese apparently used onion stalks. Whoa. The Romans, Indians, and Greeks used tubes of wood, sometimes tubes of precious metals. The Syrians used wooden reeds. And uh, we wouldn't actually see malleable catheters until the 11th century CE. Ah, uh, the most common usage uh, in all this was to drain um, you know overfilled bladders. Mm-hmm. And uh, I found this interesting. This is skipping ahead a lot, but uh, our old friend Benjamin Franklin comes up. Oh, no. Yeah, because Benjamin Franklin invented a silver <laughs> catheter for his brother who suffered from kidney, kidney stones and required a daily
0: catheterization. He was the original catheter cowboy. Yeah. He's yeah. out there He's out there electrocuting turkeys, doing catheters. Creating catheters for his brother. And then uh, Franklin uh, apparently
1: suffered from kidney stones later in life, so he likely used his own invention. Wow. Uh, rubber catheters didn't come along until the 18th century. Latex didn't come around until 1935, uh, and the you know a, a technology. Eventually, essentially, we're dealing with some of the same technology that would eventually enter the veins. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, in a sense, the catheter is kind of the precursor uh, to uh, to the hypodermic needle. And of course, the catheterization uh, also doesn't necessarily involve. Um, involved just the urethra because a French uh, physiologist, uh, Claude Bernard, performed the first cardiac catheterization in 1844 on a horse, and this application remains in use for neurosurgeons and cardiologists.
0: Mm -hmm. But a catheter is somewhat different than uh, than a hypodermic syringe. Correct, yes. Uh, so what is a hypodermic syringe? Well, it, ha- it has two main components. This would be the, hy- the hypodermic needle and the syringe. So the syringe is, if you imagine, the, the common sort of disposable medical needle you've seen – These days, the syringe is the plastic part. You know, it's the hollow tube with a retractable plunger or piston inside, which can be used to inject or withdraw liquid. And the hypodermic needle, of course, the word hypodermic means under the skin. So a hypodermic needle is a hollow needle made for piercing the skin or other outer tissues to inject into or withdraw from what's underneath by way of pressure difference created with the plunger inside the syringe.
1: Yeah, like I remember when I was a kid, you know, obviously, you know, I think everybody can relate to this. You're you're getting stuck with hypodermic needles pretty early on. So you have a pretty early understanding of, of what they are. But I remember... Uh, finding a hypodermic uh, needle plunger, uh, a clean one because my, my dad was a dentist who worked in a hospital and so he would bring these home and, you know, they're great. Oh, f- oh boy. <laughs> well, no, they're great fun to play with like in the bathtub, you know, because it's essentially right. a little plunger squirter, right? Uh-huh. But then I was then I found a knitting needle and I was like, oh, I can just put this on the end and I have, <laughs> and I have a hypodermic needle. Thankfully, I, you know, I didn't s- stick it in anything, but uh-huh. they, obviously that would not have worked because that is a solid needle. It does not have the aperture uh, uh, that is necessary uh, for the, the process
0: to take place. Right. The most important part of the metal needle being that it is the small bore needle that's hollow. It, right. Uh, the liquid can pass in and out. Yeah. So I would not
1: would not have been able to inject warm bath water into my veins. <laughs> Even if I'd
0: uh, wanted to. Well, so as I was saying earlier, I, I really do think this has got to be one of the most underappreciated inventions just because – I mean, mostly people don't like them. Like, even if you – I mean, I'm somebody who – I'm very pro-vaccine. You know, I I think – like, I I don't – I try not to demonize medical science. I still don't enjoy needles. I mean, when I've got to get a shot, I I get my flu shot every year. But I don't like the getting stuck part. Right. Like, I I like to give blood um, Uh. whenever there's a blood drive. And I'm – you
1: know, I think to do it. You know, Or if they've called me and reminded me to do it, you know, I'll go and give blood. I, I don't get faint or freak out or pass mm-hmm. out at the needle going in, but at the same time, I really don't like to look at it. Right. I I really have to look over here, and I don't I don't like the sensation of the needle remaining stuck in my arm for you know the duration of the withdrawal.
0: Right. So it's no mystery, I think, why this is a grossly underappreciated medical invention. Like, despite all of the great it does in medical science, it it you know all of the lives it saves every year. It's just it, it's just kind of icky to think about. So like we, people don't appreciate it in the same way they might appreciate aspirin or something that's not as. Uh, you know, maybe even a lot less life-saving, but is less icky to think about, right?
1: Now, I, this being said, uh, we realize that a lot of people out there, you may have uh, more familiarity with needles. Perhaps you you have to self-administer a shot, mm-hmm. uh, maybe even every day. Yeah. Uh, you know, maybe you've uh, you've gone through treatments that have required a great deal of, of uh, familiarity with hypodermic needles, and uh, you know, if this is the the case, we would obviously love to hear from you and you know, hear what your thoughts on it. Like, to what extent do you get used to it? Mm-hmm. Um. Uh, you know does it ever feel anything like comforting
0: i don't know uh, i guess it varies well i mean i hope i hope i don't know if we can achieve this but uh, by the end of this episode maybe we'll give you a new appreciation for the great value of the hypodermic needle i mean uh, th- such that y- it even viscerally affects your reaction to when you have to get a shot or get blood drawn and maybe you feel a little bit better about it that would be a that that'd be a good goal to achieve if we can do it sounds good now, before we get to uh, life-saving hypodermic needles that we should all be thankful for, l- maybe we should think about the hypodermic needles in nature that kill. <laughs> <laughs> well, not necessarily. Well, okay. I guess most of them kill.
1: Uh-huh. Or, or th- most of them can kill under the right circumstances. Uh-huh. Because before we lay the mantle of syringe inventor on a mere human, we really need to consider some of the the marvels of, uh, of hypodermic mastery in the natural world. Let's do it. All right. So, uh, for instance, just consider a spider. uh, 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 You know, a spider's fang is a perfect injection tool. Mm -hmm. It evolved, after all, to pierce a prey organism's outer layer and inject venom. We also find uh, biological injection needles in other organisms, such as bees, wasps. Uh, Both of these are, of course, examples where they're using an ovipositor uh, that, uh, you know, is an um, egg-laying organ that has uh, evolved uh, to uh, pierce uh, prey or to pierce an aggressor. Uh, We've talked about bees and wasps on the show before. Uh Uh, But then also we have mosquitoes as well. And we're talking about several different structures here that have evolved into injectors. The ovipositors, mouth parts, uh, teeth – The fang of a venomous serpent, for example, is a highly evolved uh, injection tool, and it's just a wonderful example. Um, In fact, scientists continue to look at such bioinjectors for possible ideas about how to improve upon our injection designs. Uh, This includes looking at curved spider fangs, such as those of the wandering spider, uh, and this was studied by
0: researchers at uh, the Max Planck Institute. Now, as amazing as spider fangs are in terms of biological uh, hypodermic injection, one thing I do want to make clear because this, this is one of my favorite uh, distinctions about spiders is that we must remember that the the hypodermic needle properties of spider fangs only go one way I mm-hmm. remember when I was a kid I always just assumed I maybe because of exposure to uh, hypodermic needles used to draw blood that spiders would suck the juices out of their prey with the needles of their fangs right like it would be like drawing blood right or like a or like a mosquito which we can talk about in a minute, but um Spiders don't do that. They don't suck the delicious prey juices out through the fangs the way you might draw blood from a vein with a needle. Spiders do something much grosser. <laughs> they, it involves often, like, I mean, different spiders have slightly different methods, but it usually involves some kind of external digestion, uh, like like spitting or injecting fluid that sort of dissolves the prey animal, and then like slurping parts of it up and chewing it with these gross mouth parts. It, it's It's much more amazing, actually.
1: Yes, and you know, I think Next week, we're going to have an episode of the show that deals with another uh, creepy crawly creature that utilizes a similar feeding strategy. So, oh. so if you like creatures being hollowed out by digestive juices and then uh, and then slurped like, mm. uh, like a bubble tea, then stay tuned for more stuff to blow your mind. Dissolve and slurp. It's yeah. what we do. <laughs> Now uh to come back to the mosquito though. Uh yeah, this is this is certainly certainly uh, an, an interesting uh, species to look at because the mosquito is rather skilled at withdrawing blood and it does so through its proboscis. Uh so it's not uh you know it's not an ovipositor, it's it's you know it's 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 not uh, like an auxiliary mouth part. And this is another area where scientists are looking for possible biomimetic solutions. So biomimetic, that's where we're looking to the natural world, saying, hey, how, here's, we have an engineering problem. How did evolution solve this engineering problem?
0: And then mm. how can we uh, you know, copy off of nature's notes? Actually, biomimesis goes way back in the history of uh, hypodermic needles, as we'll discuss later in the episode. So
1: in this case, researchers at Osaka's uh, Kansai University were looking into ways to develop a pain-free injection device based on uh, the the blood-drinking functionality of mosquitoes. Hmm. And it's actually rather interesting to think about because, sure, bacteria in the anticoagulant of a mosquito causes an infection that results in itching. But the poke itself, uh, how does that feel? Hmm. I mean, every now and then I'll get a mosquito bite where I'll I'll feel it. Yeah, And I'll look down and I'll, I'll catch the bugger in action and, and hopefully smite them. Uh, but most of the time, you do not feel it at all. And the reason, according to the Osaka researchers, is that while a hypodermic needle is smooth around the edges, uh, the mosquito pro- proboscis is jagged. That seems counterintuitive. It, it does. But, but apparently the way it works is that the mosquito has two serrated maxillae that cut into the skin and then they allow the labrum to slide in which I, th- I find that detail makes being uh, bitten by a mosquito uh, e- just a little creepier to think of like the mechanics of, uh, of first the skin being parted and then this other organ entering into me. Uh-huh. Um, but uh, at any rate, the reason that we, uh, we don't see it has everything to do with the serration uh, because the serrated parts result in a minimum amount of surface area impacting nerves in the skin while the human needle impacts the maximum amount of surface area. Hmm. So um, they, they've apparently been working with this for some time and they've, they've actually experimented with some prototypes, some prototype needles based on uh, the mosquito's proboscis. And they found that in the prototypes they were studying that uh, individuals poked with this needle, this mosquito needle, if you will. Uh, they didn't really feel the, the prick of the needle as much, mm-hmm. but they thought it felt more painful the longer it was in there. Hmm. so um, I don't know it'd be interesting to see where this goes I mean obviously there are other factors as well like the mos- the mosquito proboscis is is quite small mm-hmm. and uh, the needle is going to be by necessity uh, a little larger yeah uh, so that could be a part of it as well but it would be interesting to see how you know to, to see to what extent we can take the this the the the, the 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 mouth parts of the mosquito uh, you know this this tremendous enemy of uh, of humanity yeah. and turn it around to improve our healing capabilities.
0: Yeah. Now, we always go out of our way not to demonize animals on our shows. But if there is any animal that really deserves a, a, a spot as humanity's enemy, it's like the insects that are disease vectors like mosquitoes and ticks.
1: Right. Though, to be fair to the mosquitoes, uh, as always, I have to point out that they are uh, pollinators. Yeah. Uh, and that also mosquito larvae are a tremendous food source for a great number of creatures. And, of course, bats eat flying uh, adult mosquitoes as well. Oh, of
0: course. I mean, this is not to say they don't play a role in nature.
1: Yeah. But still, they are a danger to humans and they actively hunt us. Yeah.
0: I mean – and. On, on, a, on a scale of destruction to humankind that is not comparable at all to the types of animals that people actually like demonize and go out culling and right. stuff. You know, and uh, l- like large megafauna predators that almost so rarely actually attack humans. Right.
1: Yeah. When you compare historic, um, you know, tiger deaths versus malaria deaths. Yeah. Uh, clearly the enemy is the mosquito. All right. Should we take a
0: quick break and then come back and talk about humans? Sounds good. All right, we're back. We've talked about
1: uh, how nature solved the problem of how to uh, squirt stuff into or draw things
0: out of a living creature. But uh, now it's time
1: for the humans to take center
0: stage. Yeah, and the question of who should get credit for inventing the hypodermic needle or the hypodermic syringe, I, I would say does not seem Fully, totally settled, though I think there's, there's generally agreement that this medical technology came online around the middle of the 1800s and then was steadily adopted more and more throughout the later 1800s and then especially in the 20th century when the number of injectable medications boomed. Uh, but which earliest attempt should really get credit I think is kind of disputed. It should also be noted that there were various reports of inventions and experiments kind of like a hypodermic syringe noted in history before the 19th century. But uh, to whatever extent they existed and to whatever extent they served the purposes of a hypodermic syringe, they didn't survive and remain in use or in practice across time. Uh, But we will do a quick survey of a a few of these earlier records. Now – One is that forms of syringes existed in medicine before they were equipped with fine-bore needles for piercing the skin or other tissues. Like the first-century Roman scholar uh, Aulus Cornelius Celsus wrote in his book De Medicina about a process for using a syringe to wash out a wound or fistula by injecting wine or vinegar or a solution of honey. Quote, It is not inappropriate when changing the dressings and again before inserting fresh medicaments to wash out the fistula using an ear syringe with wine if there is much pus, with vinegar if there is hard callus, if it is already clean with honey wine or a decoction of vetch to which also a little honey should be added. Uh, And I've read several claims of Galen also uh, using the – mentioning the use of a syringe. Now, again, this wouldn't be a hypodermic needle, but this we we think would be some kind of plunger or piston-based object that would basically squirt liquid into an opening. Right. Just a way of squirting in the wine, the vinegar, the honey, uh, whatever the delicious food stuff is going into your fistula. <laughs> All the good stuff they yeah. squirt into you. Yeah. That's, uh, so uh, these kinds of syringes predated the modern hypodermic needle and e- you can see them being used for things in history like squirting liquid into an ear or even to administer enemas. You know, that, that's another thing that predates mm-hmm. the needle. There's also a record in medieval Egypt uh, by an Arab ophthalmologist and oculist named Amar al-Masili, who wrote extensively about treatments for eye diseases and the sight. Uh, and in in one of his works, he wrote this. I think this was around the year 900 or so. Uh, "Quote: Then I constructed a hollow needle, but I did not operate with it on anybody at all before I came to Tiberius. There came a man for an operation who told me." Do as you like with me, only I cannot lie on my back. Then I operated on him with the hollow needle and extracted the cataract, and he saw immediately and did not need to lie, but slept as he liked. Only I bandaged his eye for seven days. With this needle, nobody preceded me. I have done many operations with it in Egypt. So it sounds like he's describing some kind of needle attached to a suction device. We don't know if it would have been a piston— but attached to some kind of suction device or tube that can suck cataracts out of the eye. And and part of what he's saying here is that I think th- that a treatment known to the medicine uh, at the time in, in the area would have been to have patients lie on their backs. But this patient was like, no, I can't do that. So you've got to do something else. And apparently that involved a needle going in uh, to suck the cataracts out, which uh, – <laughs> do not do
1: not try at home.
0: Right, uh, but yeah, it does sound like he's describing some kind of early version of a kind of a hypodermic needle for suction or extraction. There, uh, much later, apparently. Blaise Pascal experimented with designs for syringes to study pressure and fluid dynamics, but it was apparent that these could possibly be used for some kind of uh, medical applications. And then the 17th and 18th century English architect and polymath Sir Christopher Wren experimented with intravenous injections. He, He created a syringe out of an animal bladder attached to a needle made from a goose quill, and he used it to inject substances like poppy sap and wine into the veins of animals and uh, building on that kind of thing, in the 1660s, the German physicians J.D. Major and J.S. Schultz experimented with intravenous infusions of blood and other liquid substances in in humans. But their injection methods were dangerous and unsuccessful due to multiple things like their lack of knowledge about germs, lack of proper sterilization techniques, uh, also lack of knowledge about proper iV dosage of medicines. So their experiments were were dangerous they led to human deaths and This is often written that it sort of like put a damper on on hypodermic needle technology because it went so wrong like that we may have developed. Uh, modern hypodermic needle technologies earlier, if they hadn't screwed theirs up.
1: Yeah, you see, you see examples of this in in medical history from this time period, where you know clearly they were on the right track, but yeah. if you're you're getting something wrong and it's resulting in like just death after death, like there's only at times it seems like it's a dead end. I mean, you saw some of this with um, the history of blood transfusions.
0: Oh, yeah. Well, th- that's sort of what's going on here. Yeah, mm-hmm. they they were doing blood transfusions and transfusions of other things. I mean, I, I didn't read a list of all the stuff, but I would not be surprised at all if they were just transfusing wine into people's veins, mm-hmm. and all the kinds of stuff people tried back then. What was it about wine in medicine throughout history, just always the wine – well,
1: I mean, and it's it's an alcohol. You know, yeah. we still use alcohol for for medical purposes, and uh, and we've t- we've discussed the uh, you know the, the properties of honey on the show before, mm-hmm. or well, we discussed it on Stuff to Blow Your Mind, right? Um, you know, which has long been uh, was was long used in uh, medical practices, so. right?
0: The short version is that honey, despite having sugar, and it also has antimicrobial properties, right? And vinegar is just delicious. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure it was balsamic vinegar. <laughs> Uh, but yeah, so we, so the, there are all these precursors to things that would eventually become the hypodermic needle. Um, but but it was re- around the mid-1800s that the true modern hypodermic syringe was really invented. And even once we get to the mid-1800s, it seems like there are a lot of people simultaneously doing research and innovation in this area. So I think by necessity, we're not going to be able to mention them all. We'll mention several of the names that most commonly come up uh, as inventors or or sort of inventors of the hypodermic syringe now the first one in many sources given credit for the invention of the hypodermic needle is a 19th century irish surgeon named francis rind r y n d i think that would be rind not rind uh, but he lived 1801 to 1861 So Francis Rind treated the public at Meath Hospital, which uh, at the time saw – or largely saw patients from the southern part of Dublin's inner city who who tended to be poor at the time. And uh, during his education, Rind was apprenticed to the Irish surgeon Sir Philip Crampton. I was trying to find out things about Crampton. The main things I could find about him were that he he was considered important. He was considered eminent. Uh, In early 19th century uh, Irish surgery, he helped found a hospital for the treatment of poor children in Dublin and that for many years there was was like this bizarre-looking memorial statue honoring Crampton at a street crossing in Dublin. And it looked like – first of all, it had a fountain and a bust of him, but over that it had a huge metal stalk of plant matter with leaves peeling off of it like a Hmm. giant elongated metal artichoke. I don't know what that was supposed to represent. I don't think it's there anymore. But Rend was not a hugely significant figure in history apart from the hypodermic needle. So it's um – um. It's hard to come across a lot of detailed biographical information about him. According to a 1970 article in JAMA recognizing his achievements, Francis Rind was described by his contemporaries as a perfect gentleman, passionately fond of hunting, a fashionable dresser, and a favorite with the ladies. Okay, well, that that tells us virtually
1: nothing about him. Except, except that maybe he had syphilis. I don't know.
0: <laughs> well, it makes me wonder. So he's a fashionable dresser, gentleman, favorite with the ladies. I, uh, we know our impressions of pain are highly variable based on psychological factors, right? Do you think injections sub- subjectively freak people out less if the guy doing the injection is like a sexy, well-dressed gentleman?
1: No. <laughs> I don't I don't think so. I think based on my experience, I think um, – Uh, You know, professional equipment and a calm demeanor demeanor go a long way uh, towards reassuring me during uh, an injection or a withdrawal.
0: I guess it doesn't say whether he was calm or not.
1: Yeah, that, that's what I want. I mean, he can. The doc can can be uh, uh, you know, handsome as all get out, but
0: uh, I want him to to be you know uh, to, to to be calm and efficient. Yeah. All right. So let's get to that injection. So in May of 1844, one of Doctor Wren's patients was a 59-year-old woman named Margaret Cox who was experiencing debilitating pain. In the face, and she couldn't sleep as a result of it. And I, I think it's probably pretty agreed now that this this was probably due to a condition that we know today is trigeminal neuralgia. Now, uh, trigeminal neuralgia or TN is a condition that affects the trigeminal nerve also known as the fifth cranial nerve. It's a large nerve that connects the face to the brain, and it's the main pathway by which we do facial motor functions like biting and chewing and by which we feel sensations in the face. And people with chronic trigeminal neuralgia can repeatedly have bouts of searing pain that just shoot across the face or flare up when the face is touched or otherwise stimulated, even just by doing something like talking or chewing And uh, this condition can be extremely painful and demoralizing. I was reading that there's even evidence it might lead to depression, anxiety, and sleep disorders. And one of the common causes is when a blood vessel is in direct contact with the nerve inside your head and the pressure of the blood vessel on the nerve causes false feedback that can be felt in the brain as pain. So uh, this patient came to Francis Rend seeking help because she had acute pain over the entire left side of her face, especially right over her left eye, and shooting down into the eye and the cheeks and the gums. And every time she tried to close her mouth or press her teeth together, the pain got worse. Apparently she'd had this pain for years and doctors had tried to treat it by having her drink a solution of morphine. This did not work. Uh, So instead, uh, Rend created a new surgical tool by combining a couple of existing tools called a trocar and a cannula. And he used it to try treating his patient's pain locally with local administration of the, uh, the morphine or the, the morphia. And so Rind described his solution in a report to the Dublin medical press in 1845 that I'm going to read from here. So uh, Rind writes, On the 3rd of June, a solution of 15 grains of acetate of morphia dissolved in one drachm of creosote was introduced to the supraorbital nerve, and along the course of the temporal, malar, and buccal nerves, by four punctures of an instrument made for the purpose. In the space of a minute, all pain except that caused by the operation, which was very slight, had ceased, and she slept better that night than she had for months. After the interval of a week, she had slight return of pain in the gums of both upper and under jaw. The fluid was again introduced by two punctures made in the gum of each jaw, and the pain disappeared. After this, the pain did not recur, and she was detained in hospital for some weeks, during which time her health improved, her sleep was restored, and she became quite a happy looking person. She left the hospital on the 1st of August in high spirits and promised to return if she ever felt the slightest pain again. We conclude she continues well, for we have not heard from her since." Now, one very important distinction is that Francis Wren's hypodermic needle was not a hypodermic syringe like we have today, which would have a tiny hollow needle or uh, and a plunger or or piston for injecting and withdrawing fluid the hypodermic needle francis rend created was a relatively uh, it would create a relatively large puncture wound and it worked by gravity hmm. so the, the two tools he combined to create it were uh, as i said a trocar which is a device with kind of a cutting point the, this is the part that punctures the skin and then a cannula which is a hollow tube which uh, the the medicinal fluid can drain down through so essentially imagine kind of a thin, sharp-tipped metal funnel. It punches a hole in the skin, and you hold it up and let the acetate of morphia run down through it, and you sort of hope for the best. All right. So, yeah, basically it makes a hole and then pours stuff into the hole. Right. Uh, and after Rend reported this new technique in the medical press, it spread to other doctors and innovators in hospitals. Several sources report that the English nurse and social reformer Florence Nightingale was treated with this technique. And she wrote, quote, Nothing did me any good but a curious little newfangled operation of putting opium under the skin, which relieved one for 24 hours.
1: This is a rather d- delightful story of medical innovation in the 19th century. Yeah. You know? I mean, it's, it's like there was a problem,
0: a solution was introduced, and it worked in right. the story. No horrors, yeah. No horrors, I like that. <laughs> um, I mean, so the history of hypodermic needles is not without any horrors, but uh, we've already explored some in the earlier centuries, right? Um, but it, yeah, th- th- this does seem like a, a really good encounter here, and so uh, – so Great for Rind. Now, Rind died in 1861 and I I think maybe we should go on to look at a couple of the other people who were commonly cited – as early innovators or or inventors of the hypodermic needle. Uh, Many other sources credit a a different doctor or pair of doctors with the invention of the modern hypodermic syringe, and these doctors are the Scottish surgeon Alexander Wood and the French surgeon Charles-Gabriel Prevaz. Now, Alexander Wood lived from 1817 to 1884, and he was a physician at a few different Scottish institutions and medical schools. I think he lived in Edinburgh. And in the year 1853... Wood made a very important change, and it was uh, pairing a small hollow bore needle with a syringe with a plunger, so that the drug could be injected rather than drained by the force of gravity. Hmm. So
1: part of this might be just what do you consider a hypodermic needle?
0: Yeah, like this is this is more of
1: a true hypodermic needle we're discussing here.
0: Right, it's got the it's got a small needle, it's got the uh, so a small needle instead of the uh, the trocar cutting tip, and it's got the piston for injecting. And so I want to read a. a Section from the biography of Alexander Wood, written by the Very Reverend Thomas Brown, uh, where where he talks about this discovery and some uh, some biomimesis going on here. Mm. So Brown writes. It was in the year 1853 that the question became pressing to him. He had encountered in his practice certain cases which, while there was great suffering, the use of opiates in the usual manner was impossible, owing to some of the conditions we have alluded to, a not at all uncommon state of affairs. In one instance, indeed, things were critical and the obtaining of sleep was an absolute necessity were life to be prolonged. A certain line of reasoning had led Dr. Wood to the belief that benefit was to be expected from the injection of morphia under the skin— Taking as his model the sting of the bee, Hmm. he had constructed a small glass syringe to which was attached a fine perforated needle point. This needle he passed under the skin, and through it he injected a small dose of morphia, which he could not give by the mouth. In this manner, all derangement of stomach and liver was avoided, and immediate absorption of the morphia into the bloodstream took place." The strikingly beneficial result which followed this bold experiment made Dr. Wood aware that he now held in his hand a new method of treatment which promised far-reaching results. Certainly in his most sanguine thoughts, he could little have imagined as he stood at that bedside how in a few years every physician would be armed with that syringe and countless patients would have seen cause to bless his skill. Interesting.
1: And yeah, I like the, the 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 bit about looking to the the world of the bee yeah. and uh and, and trying to sort of copy what the bee is doing.
0: Yeah. And uh, so another thing we see here that's very true about the early days of injections is that this new injection method was used almost exclusively for the injection of morphia and opium preparations, right? Mm -hmm. So uh, primarily in the treatment of pain. But Alexander Wood predicted that other remedies best shot directly into the bloodstream and tissues, that they would make themselves apparent. And of course, he was proven correct. It it would mainly come later in the 20th century that uh, a lot of these medications would break through. Uh, Of course, we already mentioned insulin, but, you know, there, there would be tons of them. But what about this other guy, Charles Gabriel Prevaz? Well, Prevaz was the French surgeon who's also given credit for inventing the hypodermic syringe, and he lived 1791 to 1853, and it appears that without any contact, both Prevaz and Wood invented versions of the hypodermic syringe, something that used a small, fine-bore needle that could be attached to a syringe with a piston or a plunger. Uh, And and in truth, the the addition of the piston and the plunger to the needle had all kinds of benefits. It meant that injections could be introduced much more quickly and easily. Uh, It also allowed intravenous injections, meaning drugs could be inserted directly into the blood inside a vein. It also made it easier to draw blood, which has all kinds of other uses in medicine – Um, But we should stress again that the the very beginning of this invention, the germ theory of disease was not quite yet fully understood or widely accepted. So there was still a risk of infection from unsterilized injections. And there's another dark twist to the story which does sort of presage later associations with hypodermic needles, which is that uh, after experimenting with treatments for pain, apparently both Alexander Wood and his wife became addicted to injectable morphine.
1: Yeah, and we'll we'll definitely return to that theme later on because I mean part of part of the appeal of uh, of, of the hypodermic needle is that you can you can get a very fast uh, fast reward on uh, your drug absorption. Yeah, and, uh, and you know that becomes a part of the story of uh, not only uh, opium
0: but of course heroin. Yeah. Uh, but uh, then, of course, is also like we say, of, of great even life-saving use in a medical context. Right. Yeah. If
1: you need the medication to take uh, take action now, or you need it to take action in a very specific uh, part of the human anatomy, then a
0: needle is the best way in. I think we should take another quick break, and when we come back, we can talk more about the legacy of the hypodermic syringe. All right, we're back. Uh, so I was reading an article that quoted a Dr. Declan O'Keefe of the Faculty of Pain Medicine at the Irish College of uh, Anesthetists, and this was in the year 2012. And according to to O'Keefe, there were an estimated 12 to 13 billion subcutaneous injections administered globally every year. Wow, that is hard to imagine. 12 to 13 billion injections. Now we don't know what all of those are, but I mean that, that's billions of doses of medicine, probably a lot of that life-saving medicine. So in some ways, it, it's it's hard to overstate how important the the hypodermic syringe has been uh, as as a life-saving and and quality of life-improving medical innovation.
1: Yeah, uh, because because again, I mean, think back to the various ways of getting drugs uh, and vaccines uh, specifically into the body. Certain substances just won't work as well if they're taken orally. Uh, and if you want a, f- a fast onset, uh, then you want injection. And uh, we, we mentioned, uh, um, you know, some of these substances earlier. But another great example, example w- is if you have an EpiPen. Oh yeah. You know, if you're having an allergic reaction and you need a uh, fast-acting, uh, you know, use of your medication, uh, the EpiPen is uh, is a way to inject it. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, the exact site of injection is is also key, not only for reasons of, you know, like dental surgery, you know, when you want to target the mouth. But, uh, for instance, most vaccines have to be injected into the muscle tissue. And the aim here is to optimize the immunogenicity of the vaccine and to minimize adverse reactions. Mm-hmm. So and these are just two quick examples, you know, that should give you a huge idea of how crucial the hypodermic needle is to modern medicine. Vaccines alone prevent millions of hospitalizations and hundreds of thousands of deaths. And our ability to swiftly administer a variety of drugs and to target specific areas of the body are of tremendous importance. Yeah. We're already talking about morphine. Uh, another example uh, that uh, came up in research was the morphine sirette. Hmm. That was important during World War II, and it was essentially a tiny, like if you imagine a tiny superglue tube, like the you know the disposable little tubes of superglue, it was essentially that, but it contained a shot of morphine in like a bubble, and then had a, a little needle uh, um, uh, on the end, and it was a, a, a predecessor to auto injectors like the EpiPen. Mm-hmm. You could you know just have this in the kit, and then uh, individual needed uh, morphine, uh, uh, you know, help treating an injury. Uh, that's what what you do. You just stick it in, squeeze it, and and uh, the morphine is in the body.
0: So it sounds to me like part of the benefit there is that it could be administered in a situation that was not necessarily like maybe if you're not good at giving injections or you don't know what you're right. doing or you, there's like, you know, the chaotic environment. It's just a kind of stab and go. Yeah,
1: like a, like a field medic situation. Exactly. Yeah. Um, and and uh, some of the early advancements in um, auto-injector technology were for use in like like military scenarios or bioweapons scenarios, etc., now, uh, we've discussed some of the dark corners of, uh, of injection so far, but, you know, uh, certainly there's, there's another huge area that we should probably touch on. As with other technological achievements with the ability to greatly improve the human condition, uh, we also inevitably turn them into instruments of execution and murder. Yeah. Uh, So lethal injection uh, remains in use across the United States and various other countries as well uh, and as a primary means of uh, state-sanctioned murder. It was first proposed by New York surgeon Julius Mount Blyer in 1888 as a more humane um, option uh, than hanging. And there's a you know a lot we could discuss on this topic. We touched on some of this in our episode on the guillotine. Uh, you know, much of it comes down to the the ethics of capital punishment. But there's also quite a bit of strong disagreement on just how humane lethal injection really is. Uh, not so much because of the needles, but because of the drugs used, the the differences among recipients' uh, biochemistry, and the general lacking of medical medical expertise in uh, the administration of these injections. Mm-hmm. Because, of course, to kill someone with an injection for the state is, is you know, it's a violation of the Hippocratic Oath. And the American Medical Association, for instance, argues that doctors should not participate in lethal injections. Uh-huh. So you often have people other than medical personnel that are injecting these lethal substances.
0: Well, yeah. And also, I would think about, like, the sort of oxymoron implied in the idea of researching safe ways to administer lethal injections. Yeah.
1: And then another potential dark side of all of this, of course, is the use of hypodermic needles uh, in illicit drug use. Uh, we already touched on morphine and uh, and, and mentioned heroin. Um, Heroin is a great example here. Heroin can be taken by the mouth. It can be smoked. It can be snorted or taken via rectal suppository. But it's most popular as an injection for the same reasons that injections are handy for medical purposes. And while vein damage is certainly an issue, another huge issue is the spread of disease via needle sharing. Yeah. And for this reason, uh, you know, in many countries you'll find programs to supply users with clean needles and sometimes sterile spoons and filters as well in order to prevent the spread of HIV and other illnesses.
0: Yeah. Um, and, and you could look at that actually in the idea of disposable needles as, Uh, you know, it it might be hard for some people to see it this way, but that is another life-saving technology if it's Mm -hmm. preventing the spread of uh, disease that would be spread through the unclean use of needles. I mean, one of the things that uh, is kind of hard to believe also is that when hypodermic needles first came online, when they were first being used in the 19th century, they were reused. You know, they didn't have disposable needles back then like like we have now. Disposable needles, uh, I think, were... They came around in the mid-20th century. Now, there was a long period between... you know where we were reusing needles but we knew something about germ theory and what was generally happening there happening there is that they would get autoclaved you know they get right. sterilized in between uses um but yeah the clearly the disposable needle has been a really important uh, development for for sterilization and the prevent of uh, spreading of diseases and i i would say that needle exchange programs and stuff probably fit into the same category
1: right yeah and, and part of the argument there too is like if you're going to if you're going to tackle something like uh, like an, an epidemic of heroin abuse mm-hmm. um, like you should be able to tackle the thing itself and not all the you know the residual complications of, uh, of infectious disease uh, et cetera now, I, I wonder, though, you know, how much of that, too, you're dealing with just the overall stigmatization of needles in general, you yeah. know? Because we've already touched how like, we don't want to think about needles when we're getting them stuck in our body for, for you know, completely legal and, and reasonable purposes. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so maybe we're even less inclined to uh, to look favorably upon somebody who's dealing
0: with heroin addiction, uh, you know, using needles. Well, I I have a... <sighs> I have a suspicion that I do not have evidence to back up. So, mm-hmm. you know, it could be completely wrong about this. But I sometimes wonder if a some not insignificant part of vaccine opposition has to do with just psychological aversion to needles. I know mm-hmm. that sounds way oversimplified, but – I it kind of fits together in my head. I think about the way, um, you know, I have to go to the vet and even just see like a pet get a shot. Yeah. It can be painful. It, you know, it feels like oh, that's that's not good. And of course, I know th- this this is so important for pets to get their shots, and of course, even more important for humans to get their shots. Yeah, and it's rough um, taking a human child to to get get vaccine shots. Yeah, but, you know, it's uh, it's it's part of it. And so I sometimes wonder if there there is like a. There's a bleed over in the kind of like the, the visceral, emotional, psychological reaction you have to, to seeing a child uh, feeling unhappiness at getting stuck with the needle even though it's for a life-saving vaccine. And that could possibly lead you to want to develop rational justifications for, th- for saying, well, maybe we shouldn't be doing this.
1: Right. And of course, you know, we we have – it's interesting too when you look to our our fiction and our horror fiction and you see like all these exaggerations of of needle anxiety as well. Oh, yeah. Like I never – I don't think I ever even watched any of these uh, Nightmare on Elm Street movies. But there's the one where he has uh, hypodermic needles for fingers. Oh, yeah. uh, Well, yeah.
0: I mean so he's got knives for fingers normally. Normally, yeah. But – and it's funny that they like – they're like, let's make it even worse than knives. (laughs) Let's make it needles. (laughs) Yeah. And of course, there
1: are various other films that play with with needle anxiety as well. But, Uh uh, you know, you can look at those as, you know... Horror amping us up and making us more afraid of the things that we shouldn't be afraid of, or just simply being as a, a sort of a cultural expression of how we feel about things, how we feel about technologies.
0: Uh-huh. And
1: uh, yeah. well,
0: well, the way we feel about technologies has really has really serious impacts, especially if they're medical technologies oh, yeah. or they're prophylactics of some sort. Or you know, we talked in the episode we did about condoms about how you might think like a project to develop condoms that people like using more you know that they like the feel of more or something sounds frivolous but no if like if it actually affects adoption rates of a technology that stops the spread of disease and saves lives that is a really useful thing to research and I would say the same thing could be true of needles I mean on one hand I just want to say like you know just get your flu shots get your vaccines you know get over it, it it's not like super exciting to get stuck with a needle but uh Uh, But like it's just something we should deal with. But no, I I can totally see how – If you could develop new ways of, uh, you know, new alternatives for hypodermic needles or new ways of changing the way uh, injections happen so that people have less of an innate psychological aversion to it, that might increase uh, the rates at which people, you know, get the vaccines they should be getting. uh, At which people get the flu vaccine every year and stop the spread of flu, which does actually kill people, uh, Get, you know, uh, get the other shots they need.
1: Yeah, so as, as we've mentioned already, scientists are always looking at ways to improve upon the design mm-hmm. and there are also efforts to replace the hypodermic needle, at least in some context. Yeah. It seems like there, there are certain cases where just, there's no getting around the effectiveness of a hypodermic needle, but other cases there might, you know, there, there's room for some of these other technologies. Um, also, such technology would cut down – you know, it would cut down on needle anxiety, anxiety like we're talking about. It would cut down on uh, – potentially on needle biomedical waste. But also, it could, could cut down on accidental pricks mm-hmm. of, of the – you know, on the needle. Uh, the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention have estimated that hospital-based healthcare workers accidentally prick themselves with needles 385,000 times per year. Wow. Which is a lot. Yeah. Um So one alternative, we've touched about uh, on this already, but like you could have a patch. But a patch is only going to work if the drug molecules are small enough to pass through the skin pores and it works very slowly. Mm -hmm. Uh, Jet injectors are another possibility and uh, several versions are already on the market today. The basic idea has been around for a long time with the first demonstration taking place in 1866. I I don't think I know what that is. Uh, This is just where you you, like jet propel the substance like directly through the skin. Oh, OK. Yeah. Uh, another take on this uh, studied by MIT is the Lorentz Force uh, actuator, which is a small, powerful magnet surrounded by a coil of wire that's attached to a piston inside a drug ampule, And it essentially does the same thing as a jet injector but with magnets, just forcing this uh, – this blasting this dose of drugs uh, directly through the skin. Uh-huh. Still, you know, these, these are all fine for injections but not so much withdrawals. Uh, When it comes to drawing blood out of the body, uh, there are various other innovations such as I was reading a little bit about microsampler technology that's aimed at drawing less blood but making more use of it. But I I think this still essentially makes use of a hypodermic syringe in the same way that an EpiPen still has a, a hypodermic needle inside of it. Now there certainly are technologies that explore blood withdrawal without needles out at all though. Uh researchers at startup Tasso uh are working on a quote delicate vacuum to suction blood from your microscopic vessels called capillaries into an attached container. Uh this according to uh Jordan Volinsky writing for Popular Mechanics. Huh. So again, I don't think you know these these technologies replace hypodermic needles in all situations. Mm-hmm. But you could see a, a situation where we're looking at medicine, you know, decades from now, yeah. and the hypodermic needle will still be incredibly important, but maybe there will be other areas of uh, blood withdrawal or um, or injection yeah. that can be uh, left to these, uh, you know, less prickly technologies.
0: Yeah. Uh, well, I'm all for these technologies, especially if you can show that they would probably, increase the rates at which people get the care they need or get the medications they need uh, if, if they might be averse to it otherwise just because they don't like needles. But I would say I hope a takeaway from today's episode is be thankful for needles. Even if you don't aesthetically like them, even if it's not pleasant, right. You every time you get a shot, you should like stop to think like this is amazing. This is actually great. Yes, I, this, this is a wonder. Yeah. I almost wonder if there's a kind of like campaign we could start this like I don't know what you call it, like like needle pride you know it's just like a, whenever you get a shot that you need uh when you know, or whenever you get blood drawn for some important medical reason, you can like i don 't know we we're like a uh, like your your pilot wings badge or something right
1: well, you know I think part of it too like, is that we tend to fear things we don 't completely understand, mm-hmm. and you know i 'm not saying we don't understand the basics of a, a hypodermic needle because i it, mean it's a pretty It's pretty Mm self-explanatory, but in not wanting to think about it, you know, and and not wanting to dwell on it, we perhaps give it too much almost like supernatural power. You know, we we feed into the fear too much by not confronting it. So, you know, maybe part of it is like we should try and look at the needle more. Like I should look at the needle more when I'm being uh, given a shot or they're hooking me up for a withdrawal uh, for, uh, you know, uh, for for a blood donation uh, that uh, that ultimately this will – Help me face my fear, you know, Yeah, and feel better
0: about it. This is a crucial part of modern medical science. Be thankful for the needle. Respect the needle.
1: Yeah, get used to it. You're going to get more of them. (laughs) You're not done. But we are done with this episode of Invention. Now, obviously, everyone out there has probably had shots. You've you've taken medicine in various forms. So we'd love to hear your feedback on this episode, on the the technology itself, and how we feel about it. If you want to check out more episodes of Invention, you can find us at inventionpod.com. And if you want to support the show, the best thing you can do is to just rate and review us wherever you have the power to do so. Leave a nice comment. Leave some nice stars. And make sure that you have subscribed.
0: Huge thanks, as always, to our excellent audio producer, Seth Nicholas Johnson. If you would like to get in touch with us with feedback on this episode or any other, or to suggest a topic for the future. Or just to say, hey, how you doing? You can email us at contact at Invention is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows.